Well, Psalm 63, you have that before you, and Hugo just read it for us. Psalm 63 is like this spiritual beep test. I don't know if you remember the beep test uh, from PE in high school. Some are nodding, some are not nodding. This might be an Ontario thing, uh, but every year we would do these, um, these tests in PE class and you get ranked and you get a score. And as a competitive person uh, and an insecure teenage boy, I love these things, right? This opportunity to, to prove myself. And Psalm 63 is this spiritual beep test. And the beep test would be this test of aerobic capacity how long you could run for. And if you're unfamiliar with the beep test, this is how it worked. You would run to one line before the beep sounded. And you'd run back and you tried to beat the beep again. And the beep would get increasingly faster and faster and faster until like two people remained. And then finally one person remained. I loved the the, the beep test. And I loved it not just because I was an insecure teenager looking to prove myself, but also because you can't cheat the beep test. You know, as you can imagine, as you've experienced, at the high school lockers, there's a lot of posturing, right? I'm strong, I'm fit, I did this. But the beep test could not be cheated. You couldn't fake your way through the beep test. It always proved who actually was the fittest among us. I love the beep test. You couldn't cheat the beep test. And strange as it might sound, But maybe you picked up on this as Hugo was reading. Psalm 63, especially verse 1, acts as a sort of spiritual beep test. A spiritual beep test. Except Psalm 63 doesn't assess our aerobic capacity or how physically fit you are. Psalm 63 assesses your spiritual fitness this morning. Where are you in relation to God? There is no cheating, Psalm 63, verse 1. Let let me show you. We just read this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. It could say early I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In my mind... There are three ways we hear this first verse. Three ways we hear this verse. First, you've come today and and you're not a Christian. You're you're not a follower of of Jesus and and we're glad you're here. And, And you get like intellectually the concept of somebody dying from thirst in a desert. But but longing for God for something transcendent is is just strange to you and and you just miss Psalm 63, verse one. That's the first way you read it. Second, you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but if you're being honest, and we want you to be honest, if you're being honest, your felt response to verse one is really not entirely unlike the response of the unbeliever this morning. Sure, you believe that seeking God is a good thing. Maybe there was even a time in your life where you really felt what David was talking about. But but ultimately, verse 1 is just a nice truth to you. It's not a felt or experienced reality. It's nothing more. No doubt there is, however, a third group this morning amongst us. A group of you who hear Psalm 63, verse 1, you hear this this morning, and you don't need me to say anything at all. 
Like I can stop preaching right now. David's experience, his longing is your longing and where he is, you are. For you, David's words are your words. His hunger, your hunger. His thirst, your thirst. Thus far, what does this spiritual beep test tell you about where you stand in relation to God in this moment? I want us to look at three headings this morning. Three headings, all conveniently starting with S. And by the end of our time together, we should have a better idea of, of how things are going with you and God this morning, how things are going. We'll do this spiritual beep test by looking at these three things. First, the search for God, the search for God. Second, the satisfaction of God. And then thirdly and finally, the salvation of God, the search the satisfaction, and the salvation of God. Let's read verse one again and see the search for God. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, grab a Bible at the back and you can keep it. It's yours. It's our gift to you. But Psalm 63 verse one reads like this. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If you have your Bibles open, you'll notice there's this thing right before verse one, all in caps, called a superscript, a superscript. And our superscript reads, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. It helps us locate this Psalm in David's life. Since last week, Last week where David fled from murderous King Saul, David's life has taken really a good turn. It's gone in a positive direction. As the end of our psalm told us, he's now the king. He's in charge. He's a big deal, right? Things have gone well for David, except they just went bad again. David's son Absalom has sort of thrown a coup, a revolt of sorts. And now David, once more, now late in his life, is on the run again, in the wilderness again, in hardship again. And once more, in the time of need, David searches after God. And I want us to just note for a second, last week we saw David, young man, searching after God. This week we see David, old man, searching after God. Searching after God is something we do our whole lives. If you want to arrive here and now in this age, it won't happen. Again, David finds he's pursuing God and the reality of who God is again, again, again. And what I want to do is show us now how David's searching is instructive for us, teaches us. And the first thing is this. In his searching, David teaches us that we ought to search for our God, for our God. Look at verse one again. Oh God, you are my God. My God. Let's stop there. I, I don't know what happens when you talk to people about God, but when I talk with people about God, honestly, I can understand their apprehension uh, about him, uh, apprehension to come to him. God to most of us, perhaps even to you this morning, remains a abstract, uh, cosmic concept. 
uh, we index God sort of as a culture alongside other thought experiments, right? God, like the universe, big questions of theodicy, right? He's, he's a thought experiment to most people out there. But notice that David does not begin in the abstract. He does not begin in the abstract in his pursuit. He begins in the personal. The God whom David seeks is the God he knows who made him, who formed him, who has saved him, revealed himself to him, being his rock and his foundation all these tumultuous years. Oh God, David says, you are my God. My God, not abstract, not thought experiment. It's personal, personal. It's the God who called us each by name, by his spirit. See, for us, all these years after David, our right searching is once more not directed at the abstract, but the God who comes in flesh and blood, the God who laughed and taught and healed, the God who showed us how to rightly live, and the God who died and rose again that we might do it, the God who calls us again, each by name, by his spirit, our searching this morning is directed towards Jesus, Jesus. If we are to search rightly this morning, God must not be to us an abstract thought experiment, but a person must be Jesus. See, sometimes in the busyness and business of life, we forget things, don't we? And because our world talks about God in an abstract, disembodied, depersonalized way, we can begin to think like God like that as well. We can forget that Jesus told Philip in John 14 that to see him To see and behold and know Jesus is to see and behold the Father. Oh God, you are my God. We can forget that Jesus is a real man. Yes, seated in heaven, but no less a person who loves us. Our searching is personal this morning, Christ City. We have to begin there. But second, notice that David's searching is desperate. It's, yes, personal, and it's desperate. Enter with me once more David's world, this hot world. Like, we think our heat wave was hot. David's world was hot, and it is hot. My parents just came back from the Middle East, and they were remarking about how, you know, cool it is here. And I was like, it's, it's really, really hot here. You don't understand. But comparatively, like 37, 40 degrees, this is David's world. It's a hot world, and at that time in history, there's no pipes, there's no running water, there's no tap to turn on to to get a drink. That's David's world. So from this time in history, from this part of the world, David says he searches after God, did you notice? As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We should hear this. God, if I don't find you, I will die. Such is poetic. 
It's David saying, God, if I don't find you, if you don't satiate my thirst and my hunger, I will die. See, true searching is directed towards the personal God revealed to us in Jesus. And it is desperate. Desperate. So whether you're a Christian in a dry land this morning, or you're not a follower of Jesus, interested in Christianity, I want you to consider your searching this morning, your longing this morning. In my day-to-day experience, there are, there are two kinds of searching. And maybe you can relate to this. First, and I realize I have one of my children in the room, and so I apologize, but there's a searching of my children. And it goes like this. Can you go find something? Yeah, I look for it. Right? Can anybody relate to this? This is just my kids, right? I go and stand in the middle of the room. Yeah, I, I can't find it. it, it it's not here, right? This is that, that first kind of searching. There's this second kind of searching that is the, the, the frantic kind. And if this is the searching of my kids, right? Like, I can't find it. My searching is like, I'm running out of the door like I was this morning. And like, where are my keys? Where's my wallet? Where are my books? I have to go. I'm running late. Where are my keys? right? The non-search searching and the frantic searching. We need to see that David's searching is certainly not like our children's, but it's also not like our frantic running after keys. It's a searching, honestly, it's a searching that many of us will never know in this life. It's more like this. When I was a teenager, in the summertime, uh, we would we would swim in rivers and rapids uh, up in, in sort of the north of, of Ontario. And, and we jump in these rivers and it's truly really a dumb thing to do because if you work on the water or have worked on the water, you know that rivers are always changing. That the, you know, the, the likelihood of you getting your foot stuck in like a rock or, or a branch or something, it's just really, really dangerous. And this particular river led to a, a waterfall and so we thought this is a good river to swim in. Again, insecure, not thinking teenage boy. This is perhaps a bit cathartic for me this morning. And so we jumped in this river. And I remember going down this river. And the plan was always to hop out as, as, as if we could just hop out onto this concrete platform right before we hit the, the waterfall. And so I remember going down this river and coming up to this concrete platform. And, and right when I was supposed to hop out, I found that I was being sucked in. And underneath the concrete platform, I went. And in that moment, as I, as I pawed at this concrete platform, that's the kind of desperate searching David's talking about. Like, if I don't grab onto this platform, if someone doesn't help me, I will die. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that before, where your eyes are big. Your breathing is, is increased. Your heart rate skyrocketing. I will die if I don't grab on here. This is what David is talking about. And if this is true searching, let's be really honest again. Not many of us are genuinely searching after God. If that's biblical searching, this desperate if I don't get God, I'll die searching. Not many of us are genuinely doing this. You might say, I'm interested in Christianity, which is fine and we're glad you're here and that's, that's okay. But let me just ask you, is a dying man interested in water? 
Well, that's, that, that's an interesting thought. Christianity, Jesus. Hmm. Or you might say, I think this Jesus stuff could be a really good addition to my life. You know, things are going well in business, my home life. Hey, it's okay. If I add Jesus, maybe it'll be better. It could be a great addition to our life. And again, I ask you, to a dying man, is water additional? Superfluous? A nice bonus? If I don't find you, God, I will die. I'll die. When this is your searching, when God is a thought experiment, abstract, depersonalized, when it's not desperate, you will never find God. You need to be dying to find God. Dying to encounter him dying to, for the first time in your life, be satisfied. God cannot be sipped in measured, picked up, then put down, swirled around, sniffed, you know, what's the bouquet here? No, he is either desperately guzzled or not drunk of at all. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So how do we find this satisfaction? Look at Psalm 63, two to eight. This is the satisfaction of God. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, David writes, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. Think about this image. As with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The first thing we need to see about the satisfaction of God is that it requires us to live in God's story. It requires us to live in God's story. It's interesting. David, searching for a present moment of satisfaction looks to the past to find it. Looking for present satisfaction, he goes to the past. And this is very much unlike what we do, unlike what our culture does. Our cultural maxims all over the city on billboards and spray painted on the side of buildings, they always encourage us to do what? Live in the moment. Live in the moment. Seize the day. Carpe diem. Forget about the past, live in the moment. And there's a reason for this. See, currently, as a culture, we have rejected what are called meta-narratives. And meta-narratives are just big stories that make sense of our world. And so Christianity gives us a meta-narrative, right? There's a lot of them out there. Christianity is one of them. We've rejected, as a culture, these meta-narratives, stories that call us to look back and forward in order to understand and rightly situate ourselves in our present. And because we've rejected as a culture these meta-narratives, we are encouraged obviously to live in the present because for modern man, the present is all there is. That's all there is. We've rejected meta-narratives, something to do with the past and the future. 
But this is not how the Christian thinks and lives. Psalm 63 is this ripe example of David finding satisfaction and contentedness by situating himself in God's bigger story. In verse two, look at verse two with me. He does this personally. He reflects, he says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. In the wilderness, David looks back to a moment of divine encounter, divine, dare I say, experience. The verb used here for for looked upon is not meant to indicate a visual seeing of God, but a, a general vision or experience of God's power and glory. Again, we see David situated himself in God's story when he says in verses six to seven, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, look at verse seven, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. David recalls the past in order to achieve present satisfaction, present contentedness. I have the joy of experiencing every week what David is talking about here. If you don't know this, and you might not know this, especially if you're new, we are a network of neighborhood churches. So we're three churches individually governed in East Vancouver, South Vancouver, and Kitsilano, working together in a broader network, leveraging all of our resources and all of who we are to serve this city and beyond. And each week on Wednesday, we meet as a citywide staff. And and Paul will tell you, and Heath will tell you, and Daniel will tell you, in those meetings, I have an opportunity to tell about what God is doing in East Vancouver, and it's awesome. At the same time, I have an opportunity to hear what God is doing in South Vancouver. And what God is doing in Kitsilano. And yes, God's even doing things in Kitsilano. Right? It's this incredibly encouraging time. And if I come into that meeting and I'm low, I inevitably leave filled with faith, filled with hope, filled with love. God can and does satisfy. But here's the thing, Christ City. Only he satisfies. David's desperate search for God has also exposed the emptiness of of finding satisfaction elsewhere. You have to imagine this with me. David has tasted the good life, right? He's amassed of a fortune, wealth beyond wildest dreams. He eats the best food. He wears the best clothes. And it's not just material things. He's achieved societal celebrity status. Songs are sung about David. Imagine that experience, walking down the street, someone singing a song about you, right? A bit weird, a bit strange, but I'm into it personally, right? Most of you, if you're being honest, are also into it too. Don't, you know, right? He's achieved everything there is to achieve, both personally, materially, but also just in his reputation, If there's a person with a good reason to be tempted and lured by the pulls of money, sex, and power, it's it's David. It's David. And yet this person prays, Psalm 63, verses 3 and 5, because your steadfast love is better than life. Again, remember the life that David is talking about. Your steadfast love is better than all this world has to offer. All this world has to offer. My lips will praise you. David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
See, the reason your search for God ought to be desperate is because he is the only one who can satisfy. To not search desperately is to say, if I don't find God, it's okay because there are other things and people that can satiate me, that can fill me. Only, only, only God satisfies. And when God reveals himself to us in his son Jesus, his son Jesus makes this satisfaction a central point of his ministry. Look at Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We read that before a huge crowd, I love what Jesus does. Jesus stood up and cried out. Just picture this. He's on a table or he's standing up. He stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He wants you all to know if anyone thirsts, come to him, drink, be satisfied in him. He wants you to know it so badly he got up and and he shouted it. Come to me. Only in Christ can we find satisfaction. And as I confess to our worship team this morning, this is not what I do. This is not what we do. It's not in vacations, it's not in promotions. It's not in societal acceptance or fanfare. I think there was a car out here this morning that said tax the church on it, right? It's not in a stable bank account. Only in Christ. If you don't have Christ, you will never, ever, ever be satisfied. And so I want to ask you this morning, along with the prophet Isaiah, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy. Christ city, the invitation of Psalm 63 is to cling to him. The old translation of verse eight says, my soul followeth hard after thee. I love it. My soul followeth hard after thee. Make Christ your treasure, your well to the exclusion of all others. And I can't help but think of the metaphor of of a dying person, a person dying of thirst. And when we go to these creature comforts for our satisfaction and for our joy, it's like we're choosing to drink from the ocean, right? It looks like fresh water. It feels even to touch like fresh water. But to drink of the salt water of the ocean is to get only the slightest reprieve, only to eventually be killed by it. What is the salt water in your life? What is the salt water in my life? Is it pornography? Is it that comforting thought that you're progressing rapidly in your career, that you're making a name for yourself? Is it food? Is it drink? It is salt water. 
and one day it will kill you. Starting now and into eternity. Situate yourself in the story of God and his story alone, and you'll find a story that gives you meaning, purpose, hope, satisfaction, and rescue from judgment. We have the searching, we have the satisfaction, and now the salvation of God. Psalm 63, verses 9 to 11. Read with me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now for those of you still on the edge of your seats wondering if I made it through the rapids alive. Spoiler. Alive. At that most desperate moment, I saw my friend's hand shoot down through the water and he grabbed me and he pulled me out and he saved me. He saved me. He, he truly, he truly did. The same thing happens when we find satisfaction in God. See, if the satisfaction of God is one side of the coin, displaying his steadfast love that is better than life, the other side of that very coin is his righteous judgment his righteous judgment. See, in righteousness, Jesus Christ plunged himself not only into our world as a man, but descended to hell itself, descended to the depths of the earth. He did this clothed in our sin that we would not do it. And unlike the body that is laid out for the jackals to tear at and pick at and work over, Jesus' body did not see decay. He rose again, victorious, the resurrected true king who rejoices in his father. See, here's where the end of all searching must lead. Either we trust and find our satisfaction in the one who descended to the depths of the earth for us and whose body did not see decay, or we descend. I descend, and you descend. And spoiler, we will see decay. Either way, the penalty of sin must be paid because either way there is coming a day when all who swear by him shall exalt for the mouths of liars will be stopped. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Everything untrue, silenced. Every evil word, erased. Every lying, vicious, perverted mouth closed. The mouth of liars will be stopped. This is the same day that Paul speaks of in Romans 3 when he says, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This day is coming, Christ City. It's coming. It's coming. And it's part of the story that we live in, both with a past and a future. But until that day comes, an invitation remains. In this age, an invitation remains. Will you come and drink of Christ and be forever satisfied? Or will you persist with that poisonous, evil salt water? 
Will you come and drink of Christ? Or will salt water be your portion? My prayer is that Jesus by his spirit would make us a desperate people. Now desperation takes a lot of humility. It's hard to be desperate and have your pride intact to look good before others. But my prayer is that Jesus would make us a desperate people. A desperate people who gouge ourselves on God's goodness, who feast at his table. A people who forsake all other fountains, all other empty philosophies. A people who on the day of judgment can look to the left and to the right and see brothers and sisters they labored with who by the grace of God have been kept unto salvation. Yes, you have to be dying to find God, but the good news is that he died to find you. And he always gets his people. He always gets what he wants. He is, as the poet Francis Thompson once wrote, the hound of heaven. I want to end by reading some words from the poem of that very title. Thompson writes this, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Up the state hopes I sped and shot, precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasmed fear. From those strong feet followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Christ City, let's stand in response. Father, we thank you this morning that you have in Christ pursued us. And though we have drunk time and time again from lifeless springs, from salt water, you in your grace and mercy have come that we might drink once and for all in your son Jesus. That we may have in us a well, a bubbling up to eternal life. So Father, I pray right now for us as a church that we would turn from the lifeless springs that we find ourselves knelt over this morning, subservient to this morning, that we would repent of that sin and that we would once again drink from your son Jesus, the son who satisfies, the son who saves us. It's in his name we pray, amen.